Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, and welcome to your beautiful day. I hope you're having a beautiful day wherever you go. And today we have a lot of inspiration coming our way. And thank you for listening to the Gratitude Radio Network. And I'm so thankful to have on the show today, Neil Haley from the Neil Haley Show. Hey, Neil. Hey, Jen. I'm always glad to be here and how we simulcast this stuff and great information. And we learn every guest is so different, but yet so interesting. And I find these guests very, very interesting because of the history and to think about something that we don't think about all the time and why do a documentary, especially talking about plastics. So go ahead and introduce our guests. Oh, I am so excited because I could not imagine our world without plastics from my glasses to my nails, right? I mean, my pen, everything that we have is plastic and even the space shuttle is plastic. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about the film because, you know, I love films. I'm a filmmaker. All Things Bake Like, The Age of Plastics. This is a film by John Mayer. And we are so thankful to have him on the show as well as uh, the grandson of the Palmer Chemistry Bake Light, Leo. Erica. Leo, we're so excited to have you on the show today. So basically, let's go to it, John. How did this all start? How did it happen? How did you come up with this uh, idea of, of making a documentary on this? Well, Bake Light, uh, Neil, has been kind of in, in the background of my mind of my whole life. I, uh, it was way off my radar. I thought it may have been a ceramic, but uh, I was doing another history film in my town of Reading where New Carriker lived. And uh, uh, he came to, actually, I came to him initially because of some cool dancers for this film. And you and Sherry Carriker are, are tremendous Lindy dancers. And so uh, what happened was uh, I invited him to do this scene in a movie where they're dancing against the um, uh, backdrop of, of the, of the uh, books in, in a library. And then after that, I think you was... Uh, we were kind of checking each other out as, as one does, we call it the, I call it the, the dance of the tarantulas. When you're dealing with new people, are they, are they, do they have their act together? Are they competent? Are they good people? Can, this is somebody I can work with and can they work with me? So I'll, I'll let you carry on with that subject. Yeah. Um, my wife and I danced for his film and then I watched the film that he did called Throw It Down, about um, marching bands. And that was a wonderful film. Um, and then he had the idea that we should do the film on a, a less formal style. And, and being, knowing my great-grandfather, I feared an unusual style of film would be in keeping with his uh, style. So um, 
That's why I picked John to direct the film. Yeah, there are two people, guys, that I'm scared of. One is the audience, of course. Oh, I'm scared of him, too, you, Erica. But uh, the people I'm most scared of in filmmaking is the audience editor. And I remember going into the edit room, and I'm, I'm, I'm very organized because to beat the editor up and it's wonderful guy uh craig mcterian this is our ninth film together so he would say things like i don't know if i like this dog shot do you better one and i go oh yes yes i do actually we have three possible variations and i give them the codes so i get very nervous around the editor and also in, in showing the film i usually sit in the, in the uh, auditorium and watch the back of the head and see if there's a fidget factor uh, you know, and, and our people watch. And it's it's quite gratifying if they're like young teenagers. Sometimes there would be like a couple girls giggling behind, in front of me in the theater. And, you know, you say, oh, my God, I'm, I've lost them. But very quickly, they sort of quiet down. And they get into the film. And that's very gratifying that people that you, I'm very concerned about taking other people's time. This is a very powerful medium and one that I respect a lot. So I got to give it everything I got so that I keep the audience and uh, that they have a good time and they learn something. And I learned something as well. So that's kind of my philosophy of thinking. Go ahead, John. You're on mute, John. This has been a great legacy that's been given down to Leo. Um, John, when you, were, when you were creating this, this film, when you were going back to it, what were some of the challenges that you had in finding the original, you know, the original story of the Palmers coming together and how many times you failed and to where we are now? Well, you know, I look and we, you and I talk about making like rock climbing and not that I've done a lot of rock climbing. I almost fell off the flat irons in Boulder one time. But um, my feeling is, is that if you, if you're climbing up rocks or getting up to a higher level, on a, even in a storytelling uh, case of filmmaking, even if you just get up a little higher, that raises your horizon line just a little bit. And then you say, ah, see where we can go from here. And then you're able to pull yourself a little bit higher in terms of the idea and get that much further. So it's really a matter of being open to see what's there, what, what, what the subject is and 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 you and I work very hard on the question list when we when we do interviews um they they take hours um I think our interviews went what average of two to four hours um and we build the question list like you uh, hopefully like you build a good house we did seven we'd have sometimes seven drafts just on the question list because you got to know the subject well enough to be able to do a 180 degree turn if somebody comes up with a great anecdote or something that, you know, you, you, you got to stay on the subject and follow your list. Uh, you shouldn't follow your list, if that makes any sense. You've got to be rigid and flexible at the same time. So you, what, what would you say about the interview process that we went through? I was impressed with how you could get the responses from the interviewees so easily. I mean, they all knew what they were talking about, but you were able to find ways to have them say it in an, in an unusual and entertaining way. Yeah. 
And so, John, your experience with documentaries, that help you with a lot with forming a lot of questions to ask so that you can gain as much information as possible? Because a documentary style, the interview style is the best way to get lots of information out if you're writing a book, doing any specific thing. So you have experience doing that. So when you're crafting these questions from your research, they'll be, the questions will be answered. Well, you know, I, through my career, I've, I, I grew up as a cameraman. My dad was a football coach and didn't particularly like me hanging out with the, the cheerleaders that much. And so he pulled up to the top of the um, uh, school and there was the camera up there. And he said, there's Jimmy friend up there on the roof. Why don't you go help him? He's the camera shooting the films. And as soon as I touched the camera, I knew this was my thing. And I was lucky enough to go through my career as a, as a camera operator first in New York City. Uh, I started shooting the Yankee baseball game, WPIX, in 1967. And then I got involved in what they call single camera work. And then ultimately, I did the director of photography thing with all the networks on news shows. So coming back to, 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 uh, to interview style, I got a ringside seat to some of the best interviewers in the world and how it worked and, and, you know, and how they prepared and they related to the people on camera to make them feel comfortable and sometimes uncomfortable. Uh, there was one guy who, cause normally, you know, when you ask a question, you, you right at the end, you go, because you want to encourage her to go very good. Great. Thank you. This guy would sit there and say nothing. And the guy would say, and I killed my grandmother and nephew. Instead of a reaction, the guy would look, sit. And then he'd go like this. <laughs> and the guy was almost forced to continue. And I did this and that. So, it, so there's a million different techniques. We had a situation where a person was very uncomfortable on camera. So I pulled the camera back and we took a, 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 a chair, took one of the... Uh, one of the rings off it and I actually shot the lens through the chair. So the chair acted as a barrier and, and sort of protected the interview person from me and the camera. <laughs> so there's a million different techniques. You have to really judge who you're working with uh, and, and go from there. So that's, that's kind of style, which is kind of be prepared for the unexpected. Being prepared for the unexpected is the most important thing because you never know what happens and you have to be able to monitor and adjust. And that's the industry of entertainment in so many ways, but also documentaries or finding out information. Now, uh, Hugh, were you surprised from this process of the research that John came up with and the questions and how he was able to gather the information you really wanted for this story to happen? No, uh, it was uh, a match made in heaven. John is a natural researcher and processor. We went to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, and John went through things and took notes, and it just materialized as film. It was like magic. Well, I have to put in, though, that you uh, character has the annoying annoying a habit of making good suggestions uh, you know particularly when we get into a meet what I call a medium cut not a rough cut not a fine cut but the medium cut and I actually don't let people into my edit room so we do what we call fresh eyes 
I work with the editor and, you know, I, I, I hope I beat myself up first in terms of being well prepared and having backups for the editor. I usually say, Craig, let's get to the 80% level um, on the edit. And then you, you know, you, you put my, my construction together and then you go for it and, and make some changes and we make changes on the fly. And then when we got happy, when we got less nervous about the material, we would bring Mr. Carricker in. And of course he has a whole new fresh eyes, which is the point of it, uh, perspective on the film. And um, he would, as I say, annoyingly good, good suggestions. You know, I'd like to ignore that suggestion, except it's yeah. good. <laughs> and and exactly. some that I say, you know, I know what you're, I know what you want to do here, but I'm going to stick with what we have here for these reasons. You know, it, it's a back and forth, and it can be extremely um, tough. You know, but I think the big thing is that we. We trust each other. We love each other. And the bit, the really, the big, big thing is you got to put all your energy into the show, not into your personality or your ego or whatever, you know, your little thing. Always bring it back to the show and then you're safe. Yeah, the story of Leo Baseland and Baselite was paramount in everything we did. Yeah, here was a, here was a Belgian immigrant that came to the United States uh, and uh, struggled really for his first couple of years. Uh, and one of the lines in the film is, you know, I, you know, things were tougher in the United States than Leo, but it might be for him. And here he goes and he develops Veloc, which is the first really good photographic paper, or not, not the first good, but a real leap forward in photographic paper for prints that really changed the world right there. I mean, just think, you know, this plastic business and images are, are, are things that are so ubiquitous, so much around us that we don't even really think about how important a picture is like of your grandmother. There was a time not too long ago when you just would have to be told, Neil, your, your grandmother, you know, she had kind of a fat face, but she had twinkling eyes or whatever it would be. And then the photographic image came in where you could show people here, here's your grandfather, here's your grandmother. And that made a big, a big impact to, to families in the world. And then we get into plastic. God knows what we have. I'm looking, I have a plastic pencil here, a plastic phone. There's all kinds of good plastic. And there's also misuse of plastic. We didn't get time from the plastic industry to make this film. And near the end of the film, we address the misuse of plastic and something that's very serious now, it should be to all of us going, going forward that we got to get a handle on this single use plastic and, and how are we going to manage it really? Now you think about the entrepreneurial story that this documentary also brings, that you're not going to be successful at the beginning. What did you learn, John, from this specifically the story to understand to never give up as an entrepreneur? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for mentioning that the the fact that you have an immigrant with a real entrepreneurial spirit. Um, back in the late 1800s, this what was called the phenolic problem, or it actually was called the frozen beer uh, problem in Europe, um, was a, just a, a, a daunting problem for every chemist. Neil in the in Europe. It was a who's who of chemistry tried to solve this problem and walked away from it because they said, this is too tough or there's nothing here. I can't solve it. And here you've got this entrepreneur 
who comes to America, he had a little inkling that there was something in the phenolic reaction uh, that would create plastic in the world uh, back in Europe in the late 1800s. But he came to America, made it, made a, his first fortune with Velux, and bought a big mansion with a wonderful barn that he turned into a, uh, a laboratory. And here alone, really with one assistant or two, he's toiled for how many years, you? Four or five eight, years. Five, eight years. Eight years uh, to try to discover what was in the phenolic reaction that it was the mystery and he solved it. In the, in the film, we explained how he was able to solve the phenolic reaction issue. And again, it's really, it's sticking with it, being stubborn, believing in yourself, believing in the path you need to follow to get wherever you're going. Yeah. And then Hugh, what was your feeling after the final documentary was finished? Were you happy with what John was able to do after, you know, your feedback, the great information John was able to uncover. Were you happy with the final product? Totally happy. That's why we're promoting it all over the world. Because every country has a university with students willing to learn about engineering and chemistry and the plastics industry. So um, I want all, all the young people to see this movie. And this movie appeals to younger audiences as well as uh, mature audiences. Guys, can we mention where it's going to be seen? Oh, we're, we're, we're getting there, we, John, because okay. we have, uh, you know, some of the technical difficulties. I want to cover everything before you we tell out. We'll be doing the promotion and all that stuff. I'm just interested in learning more. And okay. we're just kind of taking it down the road. And that's what the nice thing about recording versus live. Uh, back right. to Jen. Uh, so, Jen, basically... Uh, what we've learned in this process, we're talking about the entrepreneurial spirit and how that you never give up as an immigrant and be able to be successful. But also you uh, might just another summary thing that we've been discussing, everyone, is about the fact of plastics, how they're utilizing plastics today versus in the 1800s and how things have changed and how they're really taking shortcuts that are causing lots of problems that were not there then. Correct. Am I correct, John, in, in understanding the plastic world and where it is today and how they're, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, I think the thing that happened, uh, and Burke Wagner, the research chemist in the film, says, Leo felt along this wall that all the other chemists saw, and he found a door. He found a doorway into the problem. And I think that once the phenolic reaction was solved by Leo Bakelin in Bakelite, it did open the door for a myriad of other plastics that came up after that nylon rayon uh styrofoam all these things plexiglass in world war ii was used in the bombers of american bombers going overseas so yeah it really opened the door to to all these things and so many times and actually that is true in filmmaking you can get stuck somewhere and one little element will um will will trigger you and make you go forward i had a I had some problems writing, you know, I, I'm not a great writer, but I had real problems physically writing until I was at my brother's house and his son had one of these pencils. This is called my first Ticonderoga. And if you can see, 
it's giant compared yeah. to a regular pencil. But there was something about it where I was able to write with it. That's a weird uh, failing on my part, but somehow that was a key for my being able to write some stuff down for the film, throw it down, and then subsequently keep a lot of Ticonderogas around. They're also great weapons, you know, if you need to defend yourself. They're, they're pretty big pencils, so. That's funny. But, I used to date the CEO of Ticonderoga, so. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, how did you get some of the rare um, archive footage and photographs and first-person accounts for this documentary? Well, we're not really um, credit character enough for the wonderful archives that his mother really kept, kept in there. And then he suddenly took over. So he had a treasure trove of, of documents and still photographs. And we ended up finding some motion pictures um, that we were able to transfer, uh, do high def transfers on and use in the film. So, and that's the other thing that, I, and I think appreciates that we, we key a lot of stuff off pictures. This is a, a, a visual medium. So if I can find something in a picture that tells me something about the story or about the individual, that goes a long way to, um, to putting the story together. There's a shot, for example, of, of Leo in a, in a suit and he's got the pockets all sprung out because he just puts stuff in pockets because Pockets are what you use. Now, a normal businessman would never, you know, ruin his suit by putting anything in, God forbid, something in a pocket. But Leo said, what the heck? You know, that's what pockets are for. He was a very practical guy. You tell the story about the swim or the, the pool. Yeah, um, my very grandfather uh, in Florida when it was very hot uh, would walk into the swimming pool fully closed, and when he got out, the evaporation of the water cooled him off. Yeah. <laughs> what a great, great story. I, I think that what I was, you're talking about, all those great artifacts, you guys should consider NFTs. If you've not heard about NFTs, that's in the blockchain where you take specific artifacts and make them into a to the blockchain and they become artifacts. What is, NFT? what is NFT? What is NFT? So NFT is involving crypto and the blockchain where no, now they're creating. Wait, Neil, Neil, wait, what does NFT mean? What does it spell? See, that's the hard part I can explain. I'm, I'm still learning the whole NFT world, but it's okay. in blockchain where artists are now taking things into the blockchain with certain artifacts and things like that. And that's NFT. So it's the next big movement in the blockchain where now there's art that is that which they call NFTs. So it's something for you to look up and interesting, but you have all those different interesting artifacts. I wanted to mention that because that's an interesting thing for you to learn. It's, 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 been, it's just new in the new development, but it's another way to keep artifacts living for a long period of time, making them on the blockchain as well. So certain things from even a t-shirt to different types of art, now it's becoming a new big thing, which means that increases the, 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 how much it's worth and long-term value of that artifact. So interesting for me to look at. Uh, so I guess ultimately, I'm going to ask this question to you. What is your ultimate goal with this documentary? What do you want people to find out from this documentary? Well, my great grandfather solved a lot of problems with the automobile industry 
and eventually aerospace by creating this product that was so useful. And what I want the film to show is that a hundred years after his discovery, there is still a, a, a need for discoveries to solve the problems of today, to solve the problem of recycling plastic, of making less toxic plastic, and a million, many other problems that we have to solve. And I think uh, the movie opens the door to that kind of thing because we end with an IBM research chemist working on biodegradable bakelite thermoset plastic. And this is just mind boggling what the possibilities are if we're willing to make the change, if we're willing to shake up the status quo and try to make plastic from more earth-friendly material, chemical. If Leo Bacon could discover, essentially discover modern plastic in his garage, how is it that all these corporate research chemists today can't figure a way to get control of it to where it's not heaping up to the point now where it's almost over our heads? Yeah. How do we solve that problem? Or do they want to solve the problem? That's the other issue. Uh, that's that's also the, the wonder and curse of the alchemy. I mean, we have microplastics probably in our body now because they don't break down. And the microplastics that we have from other companies has just run, you know, it's just, it's never going to break down and it's ruining the, the uh, earth. But at the same time, um, what Bakelite has done is invited industrial designers to think outside the box and now we can actually print plastic. We can actually have all of the 3D printing and have technology from NASA that I use on my vacuum cleaner. The age of plastics has been amazing and a curse all at the same time. Correct. And John, is that another reason why you took on this film is because also there's a message to to change the environment and look at things like plastic in a way that has not been talked about a lot? Yeah, I, I think that the big reason I took on the film was you, character. I think he had the guts to, to tell the story right. Because, you know, once again, the, the dance of the tarantulas, we were checking each other out, and I wanted to make sure that he wasn't the kind of guy that would not, for example, say, I absolutely will not talk about the misuse of plastic in the world, I would probably say, well, I, I don't think we have a film here. So, um, you know, and we, and we had those discussions along the way and, and th this guy has the courage to, to, to tell the story like it should be told. And Neil, to your question about um, the discussion, we've been discussing this too much. We need action. All the chemical companies, the plastic companies, the petrochemical industry know that there is a problem. Right. Climate change is here. And now with the pandemic ending, we should learn from our experience and grow from that. Yes. Yeah. Not you know, the fact 
to the old standard way of doing things. Let's make more plastic bags. No, come up with some alternatives. Yeah, I think an interesting thing I heard recently is this is not an economy. This is a society. Everybody keeps talking about the friggin' economy. We should be talking about the society. We're all in this together. And my big question, one of the big questions is, are the corporations part of our society or do they just consider themselves to be aloof and just putting money in their pockets? Yeah, that's tough. That really is, a, it's a tough question. And I'm, I'm nothing against money in, in, in my pocket or anybody's pocket or anybody making a profit, but- Why does that have to be so much of a problem, right? Well, if we, yeah, if we don't start looking at holistic long run on this, of our society, we're in big trouble. And the time to do it is right now, right now. All right. Good job. Well, thank you for being on our show today. If I have one question for either one of you to answer, it was what would be your gratitude moment, um, either before filming or during filming that made this so, um, you know, come to be so easily? My, my wonderful moment was when we first showed the film in 2000. 16 to an invited audience, a plastics engineer representative stood up and invited me to show the film at his convention, his 75th anniversary celebration. And when the plastics industry accepted my movie, that was a, the best thing that ever happened. Well, congratulations on your awards. Um, you guys have won so many awards on this and I can't wait for everyone to be able to see it and, and know the history of it. I think it's wonderful. So thank you both for yeah, being on the show. We're gonna be up on a number of platforms if we might mention where, where people can sure. see this. Thank you. Uh, we're gonna be on iTunes, Apple TV Plus, Google, uh, Google, yeah, Google Play, um, YouTube, and Voodoo Domestic. So that started streaming uh, yesterday. So it's really available in five languages internationally around the world. I think we're reaching out to something like 84 countries. So everybody on the planet can see it, and I think they'll get something out of it. Nice. Well, Change world. <laughs> exactly. Go ahead and send us out, Neil. All right, perfect. So that appreciate again you guys coming on and the uh, best place to find the movie. You said it's all available everywhere is our website too. For yeah. the movie? Mm -hmm. All things bakelite.com. Yes. Fantastic. Uh, we appreciate you guys coming on. I mean, I just like to think about the story and think about, wow, people need to check this out, especially uh, historically and then looking at the history of all this and just say, well, but again, it's a documentary that's not just transforming history to see the history of who that the, the history of Bakelite, but then where we go now and the future is such an important thing. So I appreciate you guys both stepping, stopping by. Thanks for having us. All right, guys, take care guys. Again, that was uh, your beautiful day on the gratitude radio network and simulcast the Neil Haley show. Take care guys. Thanks. Thank you. Celebrity slots. 
free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download, free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download celebrity slots today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. And I'm excited on the Author's Corner segment to have Jessica Fanzo, author of Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet? Can Fixing Dinner Fix the Planet? I, I appreciate you coming on. And you know what? Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing, that title. How did you come up with that title? I'm sure everyone's asked that question today, but I just wanted to jump, uh, jump into that first. Yeah, I, it was, you know, how do we figure out how to consume more sustainably? And I, a great place to start is on the dinner plate. So um, it begs the, the question, it's a question though, right? So um, the answer is yes. Well, that's <laughs> good. No. That's, so, so, I mean, that's <laughs> important. Then that's an important thing that we're dealing with, what's up coming on with our environment and everything. But I mean, how did you come up with the question? Just just out of nowhere? Yeah. Like, you know, this is perfect way to get people interested. Yeah, it, I've been working in the food system in that space for a long time. And um, people often ask me, you know, how do I eat more sustainably? How do I eat more healthy? Um, and uh, how it will impact climate change and future of food and all of these things. So that's kind of where the title comes from. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, okay. I didn't know that was my phone number, my new office. So I'll have to edit that up, but I, we were able to pretty much answer that question. I, I think when you think about things that, that it's so important, but let's start with the dinner table. How do we do that without giving away the book? I mean, because I think we make so many mistakes in the environment. I had an interview today about a documentary called Bakelite that's about plastics and the history of how plastics started with an entrepreneur that came back to now they're figuring out sustainability with plastic. So it kind of kind of segues into this conversation right here today. Yeah, plastics is a, a huge part of the food system and we generate tons of plastic in the packaging and processing of food. I think for for everyday eaters, there's um, a few things you can do. One is thinking about how much food you throw out. About 30% of food is thrown out from what we grow worldwide, which is incredible. 30%, particularly because you know, we still have hungry people in the world. So to be wasting that kind of food is, is ri ridiculous. So things like... Um, to reduce food waste, don't overbuy. You know, don't uh, stock up your cellar like uh, there's going to be an apocalypse in a year. <laughs> That's one thing. Um, you know, check use by dates of fresh food when you buy them. Learn to love your freezer. You know, batch cook and freeze things. Use leftovers and soup. So that's that's one area. Another area is just choosing different kinds of foods. If you want to eat more healthy and sustainably, 
big things like eat more plants. You don't have to eliminate animal right. source foods, but definitely have more fruits and vegetables in your diet that make up a portion of your plate. Eat more variety. Um, think about more sustainable seafood sources like clams and mussels and oysters. Um, and like you said, try to minimize your plastic use. You know, use re reusable bags when you shop. You know, opt out of package-free fruits and vegetables. So the plastics is a huge thing. So those are just some things you can do as, as a consumer on an everyday basis. Yeah, definitely as a consumer, that makes sense. And it's healthy, more healthy for you as well. Because if we're eating out, if we, if we look at what we consume every day and we use plastics and plastics are involved in a lot of it or any type of, you know, packaging, that means that really we're not eating healthy anyways, most of the time. Exactly. Yeah. So eating healthy, more plant-based, less of the, you know, really highly processed packaged food that are high in sugar, salt, and fat, all of that is good for you and good for the planet. So it's a win-win. And that win-win is, is a definite win-win in, in so many ways. And what has been the feedback so far from your book since it's come out? Uh, I think people read it and they get a little bit depressed initially. <laughs> because the front part of the book is kind of talking about the challenges. You know, we have rising obesity, climate change is barreling down on us. We have a lot of inequities in food systems and large, you know, every system. Um, but then the second half of the book really goes into solutions and not just of what you and I can do, Neil, but what we want governments to do, what we want food and beverage industries to do. It's not just, we can't put it on the backs of consumers. We have to have governments care about and govern food systems. We need industry to um, play ball and, and, and do more of the right thing and less of the bad thing. Um, so the book really goes into those three areas of where we need government action, more businesses to take the lead, and and what we can do as individuals. So it's been it's been positive, but I think it's a bit of a wake up call for people because people don't really think about food when they think about climate, um, and people don't realize how. Gosh, food is you know it's in everything. It's everywhere and every day. You and I interact with the food system you know we may not interact with the health system hopefully we won't we don't but every day you interact with the food system and you make choices and those choices matter for you for your family for your community for the world and yeah. i think that's kind of the the big message there no i i completely agree with you because it's something that is such an important part of the process is again, um, to look at our decisions we make for the environment and the world, again, of what we're going through and really to look at those things. And your ultimate goal for the book is to really have people start thinking about how we are utilizing the planet. What are we doing that's wasting resources? How can we become more environmentally Sound. So even though the title of the book's this way, it really leads people down a path of where to go next, the next step. What's yeah. the next step to learn from this book to say, oh my gosh, well, we just talked about just what we eat 
during a regular basis, especially for dinner, breakfast, or lunch. Now let's look at how do we, how are we utilizing water? Are we, are we, how are we um, utilizing our electricity? Are we wasting certain resources that are available? Are we able to recycle more? All these questions are answered just from this book, from just kind of an eye-opening thing based on this question. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, it's one of these things where food is everywhere, right? It's sold everywhere. I mean, if you think, Neil, you walk into a hardware store, there's food by the cash register. You walk into a bookstore, there's food, right? It's one of these ubiquitous things. So it's hard to get away from, but it's also hard to make decisions about what is healthy, what is sustainable when the information is confusing. It's not always available. So it's a hard space for for people to navigate when it's everywhere and the information is confusing. So I hope that this book provides a bit of, of, of clarity on, on that and when people make decisions about their diets. Uh, yeah, so definitely uh, it's, it's something in, in so many ways that we all have to think about. And what would be three things that you would tell people today to do to help the, with um, just to make the earth a better place to live? I would say one would be maybe don't eat red meat at every meal. <laughs> okay. That would be one. No, and it's not good for you. I'd rather have fish or chicken, to be honest with you. Really? Would. Yeah. Substitute. Substitute. And, and, and that's, you know, if, if you're a person who doesn't care about the environment, but you care about your health, it's still a good reason to cut down on the red meat consumption. So that's one thing. I think the second thing is to try to reduce your consumption of these highly processed packaged foods. They're really detrimental to health. We don't know the environmental impacts of those foods, but they use a lot of plastic, like you said, but they're just really unhealthy for you. Um, But they're cheap, they're tasty, and they're convenient. And industry knows that, right? And these are, you know, junk food, basically, but it's everywhere. Um, And it's hard to get, remove yourself from that. But try to eat less of those sugary, fatty, salty kinds of foods. That's another thing. And I would say um, the third thing would be around the waste issue. You know, maybe not buying so much food. You know, try to steady and pace yourself on the amount of food you purchase and the amount of food you order. It's kind of the portion size issue because a lot of that food gets wasted. So think about the overconsumption side of, of your shopping and your ordering of food. You know, how can you reduce that a bit? And you can share plates, you can you know, shop more frequently. There's lots of things you can do to try to minimize that food waste, but that's really key. Um, particularly for Americans, we just really over shop and over consume. Um, on a daily basis. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you uh, uh, definitely stopping by today. And the best place we can purchase the book is go where? Uh, you can go to Johns Hopkins University Press, or you can find the book on Amazon. 
All right. Well, thanks for coming by and providing such great information. And thanks for coming on the Neil Haley Show. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. You listen to the Neil Haley Show. And we'll Bye-bye. Be back in just a moment. Bye. Please listen to the Forletta podcast. Larry Forletta, a retired DEA agent turned private investigator, will bring you true life stories on the war on drugs with some of the most infamous international drug traffickers of all time, to name a few, Pablo Escobar, Manuel Noriega, Joaquin Guzman, aka El Chapo, and other related real life crime stories such as Waco. For more information, please visit his website at www.fcisllc.com. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. I'm excited to welcome the program, Andrew Shack. And Andrew, what's going on? What's your topic? Okay, this is one I talk about on this radio show. It's your show. You give me an opportunity to articulate my thoughts. And let me say, Neil, uh, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but there is less and less. Uh, thought being articulated in our society. Am I correct? Oh, yeah. Uh, as I say, is our society becoming the 1984 of George Orwell or the Ray Bradbury? That's what we were hearing on my, I was hearing on another show, too. Yes. Uh, well, what, what about Orwell? He, uh, he, he said uh, uh, that they, they want to get rid of books with that in his time, in that, in that book. And he said that uh, the it was totalitarian system it is where books are not read. Really, what these people are saying, like Ray Bradbury and George Orwell, they're really saying we are heading to a dictator, totalitarian form of system. Correct? Yes. I mean, do you think that's true? I don't know. We're going to see, right? It's all going to we'll matter. See. Well, well the, how's, a, how's first, the rest of per, Europe this and is stuff? This is a situation where the Hitlers uh, yeah. and the Stalins. Where people don't read and don't know and can't think, they move in. Okay? No? That's That's how they get power. Okay, when people can't so, think. So what are you seeing happening in the United States is con- you're considering that now? Okay, I want to say why, all right. Uh, a lot of hard, it's labor. Uh, I want to give us all, one of the reasons I write is that I enjoy the sounds of words. For me, a book and writing is not merely a communication. It's not information. Words, these words can express the deepest and profoundity of feeling and sight. As I gave the example of the Psalms, it is Jewish lyrical po- lyric poetry. They are so beautiful and so engaging that to not read them is to miss out. So yes, I read because I enjoy the sounds of words. Second, I enjoy expressing my thoughts in a coherent form. In a developed writing is developed thinking. Shooting over your mouth is undeveloped right. thinking. I can't waste my time with someone who sits around yelling and screaming. What about you, Neil? You like that? No, not at all. Okay. I'm interested in people that have something to say. When I write, I do it because I'm hoping that I have something to say. And that is why people used to write things in the past. They wanted to communicate more profound and deep thoughts than merely on a superficial oral level. So uh, you might say I, I write because I enjoy the sounds and the beauty of words. And it's because I am, I think I have something to say. 
and um, these major writers and thinkers that I read, these are people who, for me, they 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 are pushing my mind to new 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 limits and new ideas. All right, that's about it for today's, ladies and gentlemen, on this radio show. I write because I like the sounds of words, because I like to develop my thinking, and because I believe that in writing, I can express ideas. Okay, awesome, Andrew. Hello. Shockinshow.com for more information. And Andrew, you're- I can't talk to you. I'm on the radio, okay? Okay. And shockinshow.com for more information, Andrew, and appreciate it, okay? Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, Let's talk again, ladies and gentlemen, on these topics. They're very important. If we're going to move into a society of plastic and and no thought is not something I'm happy about. Right, Andrew. Take care. All right, thanks. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.